Well, I trust that you, like me, are really enjoying the book of Genesis. I am honestly loving every moment of it. It's a great blessing not only to preach it, but to prepare it as well. And so very grateful to God for this uh, tremendous privilege of bringing God's word to you. This morning is part two uh, of Genesis chapter two. I've very purposely split up chapter two into two messages and have entitled just chapter two, God and man in Genesis. Uh, We see that so clearly in the book of Genesis as we uh, consider God's word. So why don't you come and read with me? As we consider the word of the Lord, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We're picking up at verse 18 uh, now as we read these uh, seven or eight verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. Fit. For him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last, is bone of my bones and a flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Just so far, the reading of God's precious and holy word. God, the prime mover, God, the man maker, God the great positioner and God the responsibility giver, as we saw in verse 1 to 17, is now further revealed from verse 18 onwards as the God of the covenant 
who shows himself forth in great compassion and love towards the man whom he created. Even though the term covenant is not used at all in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, the relationship between God and the first man, Adam, is best understood as a covenantal relationship. For instance, the term covenant is not at all mentioned in 2 Samuel 7 for the relationship that God establishes with David, but the psalmist in Psalm 89 refers to the relationship between David and God as a covenant. Likewise, the same is true for Genesis 1 to 3. The term covenant is not used in Genesis 1, 2 or 3. However, Hosea the prophet in Hosea 6 verse 7 refers to God's relationship with Adam as a covenant. As with all covenants, we need to be reminded that God always takes the initiative as the authoritative member of the covenant relationship. And in this relationship with Adam, like in all other covenants, there are stipulations that God gives to guide the relationship between God and man. And you would recall from last Lord's Day that the stipulations of this covenant are specifically laid out in the prohibition that God gives to Adam. And this prohibition also has the death penalty attached to it. For surely in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. It also needs to be understood that covenants work on what we call the representative principle. And a covenant therefore always includes not only the one with whom the covenant is made, but also his descendants. Which certainly is true of Adam's role in Genesis. Adam represents all of his descendants. And what Adam does radically impacts all who follow him. All without exception. And in Adam's case, we see that his sin is charged against all of his descendants. To use the proper theological word, Adam's sin is imputed to us all. A concept the Apostle Paul makes so abundantly clear, for example, in Romans chapter 5. Now, 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 we will see more of the imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness very particularly when we come to Genesis chapter 3. But for this morning, as part of the introduction, it is, it is crucial that I say to you that this covenant that God makes with Adam in the garden has traditionally been referred to as the covenant of works. And, and it's significantly important to stress 
that, that the covenant of works must be fully understood in order for us in a New Testament context to have a proper theological grasp of justification by faith. Because the theological concept of imputation The imputation of sin versus the imputation of righteousness is at the heart of the covenant of works. And if you don't understand the covenant of works, you cannot thoroughly grasp justification by faith alone. You see, like Adam's sin was imputed to his descendants, so the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to those who believe in him. Praise God for that. Now let me say this, many today who deny the covenant of works inevitably land up denying also the imputation of Christ's active obedience in fulfilling the law. Throw the baby out with the bathwater and there's nothing left. And friends, that denial, a denial of the covenant of works that is found in Genesis chapter 2 will radically impact how one understands justification by faith, which in turn, listen carefully, affects the way you understand the gospel in itself. You may remember right from the outset, I pointed out to you that the book of Genesis affects how we understand everything in all of Scripture. Throw out the covenant of works And you may as well throw out justification by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, through the scriptures alone, by the word of God alone. Now you may remember last Lord's Day we made it clear that Genesis chapter 2 really is just an extension of Genesis 1. Where where Genesis 1 kind of flies over the first seven days of creation. Genesis 2 kind of stands back. And the lens is broadened and gives more detail for us as to what happens on some of the days during the creation process, particularly day six. And we saw in the previous hour that Genesis 2, starting at verse 4, you may remember the Hebrew word toledot, which is the introduction of a, of a new section in the word of God, and that that word toledot occurs 10 times in the book of Genesis, each time introducing a major new section. We find ourselves now at the introduction of a major new section of the book of Genesis. And verse 4 to 25, which has been our consideration in these two hours, uh, present for us fundamentally Adam's relationship to certain aspects of the creation. Firstly, we saw in verse 4 to 7, Adam's relationship to God. Secondly, last Lord's Day, in verse 8 to 17, Adam's relationship to his natural surroundings. Now, today, in verse 18 to 20, Adam's relationship to the animal kingdom. And then finally today, in verse 21 to 25, Adam's relationship to someone like himself. Genesis 2 provides the introduction to as well as the setting for the great tragedy recorded in chapter 3, the fall of man. But today our concern primarily is with Adam in the garden and God making a helper suitable for Adam 
as per God's sovereign design. So come with me then as we unpack the text before us and as we firstly see the introduction of a seemingly contradictory statement and the awareness of a need. Let's read verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Throughout chapter 1, we had this phrase being repeated time and again. And God saw that it was good. And then at the end of chapter 1, let your eye fall on verse 31, we have the climax of all statements where, where the text then tells us, and God saw that it was very good. And it was good, 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 and it was very good. Now come to verse 18 of chapter 2, and where we are given extra information pertaining the events that took place on the sixth day of creation when God created man. And suddenly, it comes as a surprise to us after God has just said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And he ends it off by saying, and it was very good, that in verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good. Beloved, at first glance, this seems like a contradictory statement. How can it be that everything is good and suddenly something is not good? And it could seem so contradictory that it may come across as if this is going against everything that has already been made known. But you see what we have here is a combination of the events of day six and now the extra information that we are given here from verse 18 onwards. And this is what we glean from it. That on day six, from the time God creates Adam till later somewhere in that day when God makes for him a suitable help meet, some time elapses and that elapse of time is now described in verse 18 to 25. So, so note this. Everything accounted for in verse 18 to 25 describes what happened in full on the sixth day of creation. And note this now. Somewhere after God makes Adam... And before he makes Eve later somewhere that day, God states something is wrong. Until the woman is formed, God cannot pronounce the creation of humans as good.
the work is still incomplete. And we saw clearly in chapter 1 that God only declares his work as good at the end of each day of creation when that work is complete. Somewhere in the course of day 6, God notices as per his sovereign eternal plan that it is not yet complete and therefore God says it is not good. That statement, it is not good, is now defined. Though God had ultimately created Adam for fellowship with God, and though man ought to derive his highest good from that fellowship with God, we also see that God creates man to have relationships with other fellow human beings. And that is derived from who God is. For beloved, the the God in whose image we are made is not a lonely God. There indeed is but only one true God But our one true God is not a unitary, solitary person. And we are told that in Genesis chapter 1. In in, in chapter 1 verse 26, we see God having communion amongst the members of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit together meet in holy counsel even before the foundations of the earth. And the most perfect unity and fellowship of love exists within the very being of God. Now, now admittedly, human beings are not like God by being tri-personal. But we are like God in being created to have deep, meaningful, interpersonal interaction and communion with other people. And so what we see here is that It is not good that Adam had no companion who is like him. Something is amiss, and God is about to address this. Now, this text recounts the divine provision of a helper for Adam and of the two becoming one flesh. And from this account, then, is drawn all biblical teaching on the covenant of marriage. I'll highlight for you just now how the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus, when teaching on marriage, comes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Marriage is a creation ordinance, and Jesus affirms that in his preaching and his teaching. Now, now thus far, in the book of Genesis, the preeminence of God is stressed And and you'd remember that this continues here in chapter 2. Do you recall last Lord's Day? I reminded you that 35 times in 34 verses, the word God is used. God is at center stage in the book of Genesis. Genesis is about God. Divine initiative, no doubt, is at the very root of everything unfolding in the book of Genesis. 
Let me just show you in the passage we're reading now, I'm not even looking broader that, than that, just in the passage we're reading now, let me show you how divine initiative comes across four times. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said. Verse 19. The Lord God formed. Verse 21. The Lord God caused. And then verse 22. The Lord God made. Divine initiative permeating every aspect of not only day six, of all of creation, but our focus now is on day six. You'd remember the shift that takes place from chapter one to chapter two. In chapter one, Moses reveals God as God, Elohim. And in chapter two, we saw that wonderful transition from God to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, representing the very covenant name of God before his people. And now Moses stresses that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the creator, the covenant-making God, takes the initiative to shape the man and the woman in their God-given relationship and that everything they have is directly from this loving, covenant-keeping God. Look at verse 19 and 20. Intriguingly, verses 19 to 20 gives the occasion that gives rise to the fact that it can be seen that man is lonely and that such a state is not for his good. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, puts man in a relationship with and to the animal kingdom, both as its superior and as its keeper and its tender. Look at the text and the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and God brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. Quite incredible. But now watch what happens. Even after the animal kingdom is brought before Adam and I have no doubt in two by twos just like we would see even in the ark male and female counterpart. And as Adam is given superiority as the sovereign of creation under the sovereign God, God gives Adam the command to give each of the animals a name and Adam gave unto them a name. And then the text says something amazing. Whatever Adam called them, that was their name. One of the commentators stressed that there's no doubt that, as a, that, that because this is before the fall, that we can surmise from this that Adam was a highly intelligible human being. And that by God's sovereign design, as per the different species, Adam names them, and so it was. But watch what God now does. As the animals, more than likely in pairs, come one by one before Adam, and this no doubt would have taken a considerable period of time, God causes Adam to see that in the two-by-two two nature of each of the animal pairs, that there is something missing for Adam, and that he cannot have communion like those have with each other, with someone who is like him. 
And God says it's not good. And Adam, no doubt, felt that it was not good. And God sovereignly uses the very act of Adam's interaction with the animal kingdom on day six. And then him naming all of the animals as the occasion that gives rise to the fact that something is clearly amiss in Adam's existence. And Adam is made to feel this void. You see, there's now an awareness of Adam's need. And God supernaturally orchestrates and directs the events in the garden to such an extent that Adam would clearly recognize something is not quite as it is intended to be. And in verse 19 and 20, we see Adam's superiority over the animal kingdom and the sovereignty God assigned to Adam over all that God has made as Adam is God's subject. Adam, we saw last in the last hour, was to rule and to keep. Now look at verse 19. And Adam does this well, for whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. And yet, folk, after the man had given names to, verse 20, all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, we see that amongst this variety, there is none suitable for Adam, for verse 20 tells us there was not a helper fit for him. And it's that which God says in verse 18, that is not good. Now, my title of this point says, a seemingly contradictory statement. This comment of God is not contradictory. That's why I call it a seemingly contradictory statement. This comment of God that it is not good for man to be alone simply confirms God's intention on day six to make all things complete and therefore to make all things perfect. And the creation of man could not be viewed as perfect till God made for Adam a helpmeet suitable. And God proceeds to bring about such a helpmeet. For after what seems to be a negative declaration, he now positively in verse 18 states, I will make a helper fit for him. And that detail now fills in the blank. Let your eye go back to Genesis 1 verse 27 that says, And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the completion of that statement. <laughs> Secondly then, come with me as I show you from verse 21 onwards, that we are here having the first proclamation of an everlasting gospel. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, I, I realize that the title I've chosen there may sound somewhat strange of a heading to use, but I soon trust as this point unfolds that you'll clearly see what I mean by it. 
However, in the Lord's providence, let, let me allow me to use this as an opportunity to punt something that I believe will be of great value for us as a congregation, particularly as we are currently preaching through the book of Genesis. Lord willing, on Saturday, the 23rd of May, we will be having Creation Ministries International with us here at Glen Vista. We hope to invite a number of other churches to come and join us. And Mark Ambler will be our guest speaker that morning. And Mark's message that morning will be the gospel in Genesis. Could not think of a more appropriate a title whilst we are in Genesis. And I want to show you that the first introduction of an everlasting gospel is found as early as Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 21. The narrative now continues by picturing how God set about to make a helper suitable for the man. The man was made from the dust, remember? God breathes upon the dead lump of clay and, and life enters the clay and the clay becomes a human being in male form. God creates Adam from already existing matter. Adam, unlike the rest of creation, Adam is not created ex nihilo. Adam is not made out of nothing. So also with Eve. Eve also is not created ex nihilo. The Latin phrase that simply means out of nothing. So how does God do it then? Well, look at the text. God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. The way in which God made the first woman is certainly not what one would expect. From a human perspective, I think we could say, well, if God made Adam from the dust, why does God not just make Eve from the dust as well? One would think that God would have used the same method to create Eve as he employed in creating Adam. But God does not make Eve from the dust. Rather, he builds her up out of the anatomy of the man. And why is that important? Because Adam's life would become her life. Just as we saw last week, that God's life became Adam's life when God breathed upon Adam. And so what we see here is that God puts Adam to a deep sleep and God performs the first marvelous surgical operation on Adam. Now let me state, that sleep was not like our modern day anesthetic. God does not put Adam to sleep to prevent pain because pain would not yet have existed because pain only enters after Genesis 3 when man sins. So why does God put Adam to sleep then? Why does God put him to sleep if it wasn't that Adam would feel the process of surgical pain as you and I would. Well, Henry Morris in his commentary gives perhaps the most helpful explanation of this and it's on the screen. 
Morris says, it seems almost as though Adam died. But now watch that it's in inverted commas. I will qualify that now. It seems almost as though Adam died when as yet there was no death in the world in order that he might obtain a bride to share his life. Now remember where I'm taking you. I want to prove to you that this is the first introduction of the gospel in the book of Genesis. Morris says it seems, I'm stressing that word, as if Adam died. Now do remember this, death only enters after Adam transgresses the law. In other words, what Morris says, the deep sleep God brings upon Adam was so deep that it almost seemed like death. It wasn't death. Adam is alive. But it almost seemed like death that from death could come life. Can you hear the gospel already? From death to life? Morris then continues and he further says, on this side of Calvary, the Christian can hardly fail to see here God's first proclamation of the everlasting gospel, Revelation 14, telling of one who was slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13. Though Adam himself may not have understood this, he would at least forever be impressed with the formation of new life and perfect fellowship out of what would have seemed, except for God, to be, the, to be the very cessation of life. From death comes life. Genesis 2, verse 21 and 22, presents before us a beautiful picture of the gospel. And in fact, it is the first proclamation of the gospel so very early in the beginning. God brings life from so-called death. Adam goes into such a deep sleep that he may not be aware of the deep workings of God. And from that state of sleep, God then sovereignly and miraculously brings about life. The text tells us while Adam sleeps, God took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And from the rib, verse 22, uh, God forms a woman and brought her to the man. That phrase from one of his ribs is actually more correctly translated from his side and may very well include the rib. But the intention in the Hebrew word is that God used more than just the rib, and I want to prove that to you. You see, taking from one of Adam's sides would have meant that God would have taken both flesh and bone as well as blood released from the open side to form the woman. And Adam's response when he sees the woman for the first time proves that clearly. Look at verse 23. He doesn't respond and say, this is now rib of my ribs. No, watch what he says. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
You see, as per God's amazing design of the human body, it's significant that both bone and flesh are sustained by what? By blood. In fact, the scriptures are clear. In Genesis 9.4 and Leviticus 17.11, when it states, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You see, God so designed the human body that our blood carries the necessary oxygen and the other chemicals from the air and from our food that man needs to maintain his body in good health and in strength. And therefore, from Adam's side, God miraculously forms for Adam his helpmeet, one who would be other than the animals whom Adam has just named, Yet one who would be just like him, yet also so very different from him. A suitable and perfectly compatible helper made by God from Adam's very side. And now hear the gospel. And God presents her to Adam. For the text says, for God made her into a woman and brought her to the man. Don't we have a beautiful picture there of the marriage covenant? As the bride is brought to the groom and the two become one flesh. Now, where do we see the gospel in it? Well, God is even now preparing a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 15 verse 14. As each member of the bride is being built up into one body. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And when God's work is completely finished, God will present the bride unblemished to the Lord Jesus and he will then go and meet her and she will be forever joined unto him. John 14 verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Revelation 19 verse 7 to 9, Revelation 21 verse 1 to 4, and so I can go on. God brings Adam's bride to him. And then something profound happens. Adam stops. And Adam is stunned. Adam, for the first time in all of creation, views before his eyes something that no man has ever before seen. And he looks this being that God presents before him up and down. And he possibly even walks around her and he considers that which God has made. And Adam, in wonder and in worship, cries out, Whoa, man! And he calls her woe man. <laughs> or as we would say, woman. If you don't believe me, look at the text in verse 23. 
This is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man. And she was taken out of man. Now, now watch what's happening here. Just as Adam named all the other creatures, God leaves the prerogative to Adam to call her what he would. The Hebrew word for man, last Sunday we saw is Adam, but there's another Hebrew word, and the one's being used here in verse 23, is the Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha, I-S-H-A. Man, woman. And it literally means out of man. Well, consider how amazing this is. From his side, as God makes a wound, from his very flesh, from his bones, and from his blood, God creates a replica for Adam, yet she is significantly, physiologically so different that Adam breaks forth in praise and he shouts out in amazement at this wonderful creature that God has made for him. How good is God? This significantly reminds us of the one whose side was pierced and from whose side flowed water and blood. It reminds us of the one who was pierced at Calvary for our transgressions. For the gospel account tells us that the Son of God who fell into a deep sleep on Calvary's tree, of whose body not a single bone was broken, but from whose side, John 19, forthwith came there out blood and water. That's the picture of the gospel unfolding as God presents to Adam a bride. And as God prepares for his son a bride without spot, without wrinkle. From the very life of Adam, from his life-giving blood, God both made and sustained Eve a bride and a suitable helpmeet for Adam. But there's a beautiful picture of Christ in the church here. We who make up the bride of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, have received our life by his very blood, John 6 verse 54 to 56. His death brought us life. His suffering and captivity brings us freedom and release from the bonds of sin and shame. Uh, therefore, therefore, Paul can write to the Ephesians. He says, we become, listen carefully now, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 5 verse 30. That's incredible. It's the very language of Genesis. Paul says, we become members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 5 verse 30. What an incredible thought. What a beautiful picture of redemption. 
right at the outset of the gospel, as part of redemption history, as, as God presents Adam with his own bride. Well, thirdly and finally then, we have also here the introduction of a first-time perpetual bond. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Where does marriage come from? Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Marriage is a creation ordinance instituted by God himself for the good of his people. And here we have the introduction of a first time ongoing bond between man and woman. It's the introduction of a formula that will by God's design protect and guide the marriage bond between a man and a woman. And beloved, God is so concerned about this bond that he makes it very clear from the very beginning that it is a bond that is not to be entered upon lightly and a bond that may not be broken until death do them part. Well, now, watch now, now we are told that the man and the woman were together and they were both naked and there was nothing to be ashamed over, verse 25. Why is that? Well, because sin hasn't ended. That's why. And because sin hasn't entered, there was nothing yet that had spoiled that which was beautiful and holy. You see, at this stage, Adam and Eve's physiological differences provide no grounds for shame or for guilt at this point in time. They were perfectly comfortable with each other, even though both of them were naked. And at this stage, man had no consciousness of sin or moral guilt. And listen to this, where there is no sin, where there is no sin, there is no shame. of the goodness of God Adam's joyous shout in the garden echoes down to this present day showing forth the incredible joy and the intimacy of the marriage covenant as so designed by God Now watch what happens now. From the shout of ecstasy, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam's voice dissipates in the garden and God speaks through Moses again and God says in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. These words of Moses are divine revelation and in order to prove its veracity, our Lord Jesus, when speaking of the marriage bond between a man and a woman, quotes this very text in Matthew 19 verse 5 as he preaches. And so also does the Apostle Paul in that well-known passage on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 to, 30, verse 21 to 31. Here's what we see from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we see 
that monogamous heterosexual marriages between a natural man and a natural woman is the only way in which marriage may be approached. Thus saith the Lord. It is upon such a union in the marriage covenant only upon which the Lord smiles. And note that it is a creation mandate. This, beloved, is what God intended for marriage in all ages, even till the age when Christ comes again on the clouds of glory. And then when Christ comes again on the clouds of glory, there will be no further need for marriage. Because what does Paul say in Ephesians 5 is marriage all about? And actually he says there, now this is a great mystery in Ephesians 5. And then he pauses and he says, and I'm not talking about the man and the woman, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Fascinating text. Uh, uh, 21 to 31, says so about 11 verses. In 11 verses, he speaks 10 of the 11 about marriage. And then in one verse, he says, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's why there will be no marriage when Christ comes again. Because this marriage here is an imperfect shadow pointing towards the greater marriage that is to come when Christ comes to collect his bride. But, but here's what we need to see in Genesis. Marriage is ordained by God and you and I have no right to do with marriage what we like. We may not change its stipulations. Uh, let's say this. If it was merely a human ordinance, well, then do what you want with it, right? But it's not a human ordinance. It is divine in its origin. It is divine in its sanction. Therefore, only the divine one who instituted marriage may give unto it clear and perpetual guidelines by, by which the covenant must be administered. How do we do that? A marriage centered upon Christ is a fulfillment of the creation mandate. It pleases the Lord and it brings him great joy. When a husband loves his wife self-sacrificially and a wife submits unto her husband as she would submit unto the Lord, in that special relationship is a portrayal of the glorious relationship between Christ and his church as then beautifully revealed in the gospel even as early as Genesis 1 and 2. So in conclusion then, we need to state affirmatively how lovely it is when God is at the center of all things. 35 verses, 34 verses in Genesis 1, 25 in Genesis 2, that, that's roughly, what, 60 verses so far. And in these 60 verses, God is at center stage and because God is at center stage, all things are beautiful. That's not only true for the garden. That's true for now. You see, we can at the conclusion of chapter 2 say truly, Adam and Eve are in paradise. Nothing has spoiled it. Nothing has hindered it. 
The beauty of the God-given relationship between a godly man and a godly woman that rejoice within each other and within their maker. There is a one flesh harmony being portrayed in Genesis chapter 2 because he carried her on his heart and she carries him on hers. How wonderful it must have been to be in such intimate fellowship with God and with each other. No sin to spoil, no arguments, just the harmony of this beautiful God-given relationship. What do we learn from this? Well, I think we learn from this that human beings are not created to live in solidarity. God has created us for communion. And therefore, beloved, even as we saw around the table, the true saint will always desire to be with the bride of Christ as often as possible And and we need to say that if there is no desire whatsoever, then we need to question the veracity of the claims that the individual is making upon Christ. Right? For he who has truly tasted the, the sweet fellowship that comes through saving faith will constantly desire that intimacy and fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ as often as is possible. And as we gather together, not only is Christ glorified, but we also are stimulated by the hearing of God's word to grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Adam receives the kiss of life from God in the garden, so you and I cannot be awakened from spiritual death and apathy unless we are awakened and born again from above. And once we are born again, we are given a new desire within a new heart to follow and honor the Lord in all that we do. Then our hearts yearn after the risen Lord, whereas before our hearts were at enmity with Christ. We are indeed a new creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepares in advance for us to do. Folks, this is so big. This is so marvelous that we cannot do anything but desire to live for him and please him in all that we do. Uh, in Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's our desire, then those desires will reflect in the everyday relationships we have with one another. And it will particularly reflect within the marriage bond where a man and a woman realize the places that God has assigned to each one in perfect equality in the marriage bond. You see, what differs in the marriage bond is not our equality, but simply our job descriptions. Because our status is equal in God's sight as man and as woman. And because Eve came from Adam, she perfectly, per Genesis 1.27, shares the image of God because God created both the male and the female in his image. But God sovereignly designs different job descriptions to them. And the woman's creation out of Adam is the very basis of her equality. Matthew Henry states that so well, and I quote, not made out of his head 
to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Eve was taken out of Adam so that he might embrace her with great love as part of himself. What a beautiful picture of an everlasting gospel. Portraying a God who changes not, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. What a picture of grace and its transforming effect on everyday life and the marriage covenant in particular. And in so doing, a seemingly contradictory statement on the sixth day, which first rang, it is not good, became very good. And then Genesis 1.31, and then there was evening, and then there was morning, the sixth day. You see, beloved, when God rules your life and is at the center of your existence, it is very good. Let's pray together. So Father, if that then be true, and it is, that when Christ is at the center, that all is very good. We have to then admit that when things are not good and they're messy, it is because we are at the center. And because our self-centered licentiousness and ungodliness comes to the fore and destroys. Therefore, we pray this morning in light of this message for marriages in this congregation. As we've rejoiced with one couple who's about to get married, we pray for all other marriages in this congregation. Oh God, would you keep the marriage covenant of your people here represented, represented both safe and pure? Keep us with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. We pray for those in our midst who, as a result of painful circumstances, may no longer be in a marriage covenant, that you would grant grace and consolation to them as they have their eyes on Christ. We pray for those in our midst for whom the marriage covenant came to an end as a result of death. Oh God, be gracious to your bride. Help us as a congregation to have our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. May, may Christ indeed be the center of this congregation, for then indeed it will be very good. Forgive us, O oh God, our shortcomings, our failure, and our sin. Help us to have our eyes on you. We thank you for your word, and we worship, and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.